BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm Dr. Aliza Pressman, and today's episode is brought to you by Healthy Nest. If you go to www.healthynesting.com, you will find the most incredible diapers, wipes, and cleaning products and baby care products. They are both healthy for the planet and for your baby and toddler and child and ourselves. So it's pretty awesome. And I'm very honored to have them as my sponsor. Today's conversation is with Dr. Lisa Demore, who's a clinical psychologist and New York Times bestselling author of two awesome books I will put in the show notes, Untangled and Under Pressure. So I wanted to get Dr. Demore's take on how older children and adolescents are doing and what are the proactive things that we know from science that we can borrow from science to make what is inevitably a difficult time a little bit more manageable? So I am thrilled to be back with you. I love your podcast. Thank you. I'm so glad that you took this time because I was like, I knew I needed to share you with everybody. I appreciate that. I will say That in my 25 years of work as a psychologist, I've never seen anything that can even be put on the same yardstick as COVID-19. This is deeply upsetting to me personally and also unbelievably fascinating to me professionally. And I have found actually a lot of hope and inspiration in the science that we have on how people get through hard things, because we do have a science of how people get through hard things. Yes. Let's hear it. So, well, let's just start with anxiety. (laughs) Let's start with anxiety because (laughs) everybody's feeling anxiety right now and they should. They should. It's the right reaction. They're having the right feeling at the right time. So, you know that since before COVID-19, I have been banging the drum that anxiety is a normal and healthy emotion that only occasionally derails. Um, So here we are with... A real test. A real test, a real sort of um, worldwide example of how anxiety operates. And just to recap, anxiety is an alarm system. It alerts us when something is wrong. It is there to protect us. I think about it all the time now as 
the emotional equivalent of the physical pain response. Mm. We feel pain when we have an injury or we're touching a hot burner or something's wrong. The pain is unpleasant. It is fundamentally protective. We feel anxiety when somebody is too close to us at the grocery store or when you know, we have touched something and don't have a chance to wash our hands. Um, It is unpleasant. It is fundamentally protective. And that's the piece I just want all of us to start with is that the anxiety is a sign of mental health right Mm -hmm. now. It is valuable and useful. It's exhausting. Yeah. And we need to find ways to get breaks from it. But when I think about like what good could come from this pandemic, mm-hmm. there is this part of me that hopes that we, as a culture, renegotiate the relationship we had with anxiety because as a culture, we were under the impression that you're not supposed to feel anxious. Yes. And that has never been accurate or helpful. I, you know, and I'm not Pollyannish about it at all. I no. just feel like if everyone's feeling anxiety, then it means anxiety is um, not the great pathology we thought it was, and it's not. Okay, but can it get out of control? Can you feel anxious at the grocery store versus having a panic attack at the grocery store, right? You don't want to have a panic attack at the grocery store. So the line has always been true of the distinction between healthy anxiety and unhealthy anxiety is unhealthy anxiety is when you're anxious and nothing's wrong, which right now we don't have that problem ever, mm-hmm. um, or right. you're anxious and it is grossly out of proportion to events. So that would be the panic attack at the grocery store versus the merely sort of heightened awareness and, you know, kind of tension we feel at the grocery store, which does help us to actually avoid- Be careful. Well, be yeah. careful, not touch our face. You know, it's, I hate going to the grocery store now. It's, I, I realized in retrospect, I think I used to like it. It was kind of an adventure. Yeah. You know? And now I'm like, oh, I hate the grocery store because I feel anxious the whole time. Yeah. It's not fun. And it depends also where you are because there are some environments where it is just, it feels threatening. And that also really plays to something else, which is the anxiety of COVID-19. And then we'll talk about stress. They're not distributed equally. You know, uh-huh. they're very much driven by the context in which you exist. So, okay, so if the anxiety is normal until it's not, the stress is expectable until it becomes really toxic. Mm-hmm. So um, let's start with who we need to worry about the most from the yeah. stress standpoint. Great. And it's people who were already stressed. Mm-hmm. We have always known in psychology that stress is dynamic. And there's a couple ways this is true, but one way it's true is it accumulates, that the stress of a new thing only layers on top of whatever stress you were living with before. So um, I'll use myself as an example. My life was really very comfortable before Mm COVID-19. I like my family. I like my husband. (laughs) We we live in Shaker Heights, Ohio, so we space to spare. Um, COVID-19 is very unpleasant for me, but it's utterly bearable. You know, I can totally manage it. I have days that are not my favorite, (laughs) but in the grand scheme, we're doing just fine. Yeah. When we think about people who either were having very difficult situations at home before this, or Mm. were on, you know, faced with structural inequities, poverty, racism, lack of access to what should be utilities like the internet. Mm -hmm. Um, That means that the stress of COVID-19 has only taken 
what was an already difficult circumstance and for many people actually made it devastating. And so we cannot talk about the stress of COVID-19 without talking about the stress that predated COVID-19 for whoever we're talking about. It is one of those things where actually, um, no matter how much empathy you have, it does become very hard to conceptualize, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it just, like, I think there's something I almost in my own mind can watch a defensive process take hold where I go there and then um, I find it really hard to wrap my head around it. And, and I don't feel good about that. Like I, you know, I, 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 um, I watch myself take advantage of my um, ability to think about it and then not think about it if I don't want to. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, um, I think, something to be honest about and then to not allow and and not um not indulge if if I can help it in other words don't shut down that uncomfortable thought yeah and then you know the best defensive response is actually sublimation where you turn it into something useful right so if i find it unbearable to imagine how bad this must be for people who are already living chaotic or marginal or marginalized lives, then I need to get myself to the soup kitchen or get not, you know, to the food bank and provide and contribute and do what I can with what I have, which is more than most. And to that point, activating our kids to do the same thing, to take them out of the place of not accessing that discomfort. I think that's right. And so then to sort of bring this around to like, what are some bigger, like what are some principles that are at play here and that also then have like broad resonance? And and one of the things I've been thinking about a lot, and I wonder if you have too, is um that old research on learned helplessness. Mm-hmm. I know this has been on your mind, but um, so this is, you know, this is Martin Seligman. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it was the 60s. I think it was 67 maybe. Um, did this research that, you know, it's, it's covered in every intro psych textbook in the, in the country. What he did, the, the research itself is a little bit upsetting in terms of um, describing the methodologies, but he, he you, you know where I'm going with this. Yeah, it's, but it's, it's actually so worth, it's just hard. It's hard to talk about older studies that are really important. They've given us really important information, but they are just are not acceptable <laughs> in their, their, their ethics because we just didn't have the same... No, didn't have the same view on things. So uh, with fair warning to your listeners, here's here's what he did. Um, He had what they were called shuttle boxes built, but they were basically cages of sorts with um, room for, they were for dogs and room for the dog to leap across a low barrier within the cage. And he electrified the floor of the shuttle box so that... um, when there was a tone, there would be a, let's, let's assume it was a light shock that would come through the floor yes. and shock the dog. And he then created conditions where if the dog leapt over the barrier to the other side to avoid the shock, when the tone came, the shock came anyway. And so when the dog leapt back over the barrier, no matter what the dog did, on whatever side of the shuttle box the dog was on, a shock was going to come. He then changed the conditions so that if, a, if the tone rang and the dog leapt over the barrier, they could avoid the shock. And 
literally picked the dogs up and pulled them over to the barrier to show them that. So they would be on the side where the shock was or had most recently happened. The tone would happen. He would pull them over the barrier to the side without the shock. Um, there would be no shock. And you know, what he found, actually, I, I missed a key part. When the dogs discovered that no matter what they did, um, they couldn't avoid the shock, they just laid down. Exactly. They yeah. just, they just um, laid down and this sounds awful, but like the tone kept ringing and they just kept taking these awful they shocks. Right. They lived with it. Yeah. They just lived with it. They just accepted it. Like there's nothing I can do. So then they changed the conditions so that um, they could avoid the shock, but he couldn't convince them of this. And so even under the new condition, they just lay down and took the shock, even though it was now avoidable and he had showed them this. So, you know, of course you can ask a billion questions about this methodology, but the the, the key takeaway that I think does hold up is that when we are under conditions where so much feels out of our control, it is very easy to just want to get in bed, pull the covers over your head and say like, tell me when it's over, there's nothing yeah. I can do. And, and so when we think about, okay, but I also can get myself down to the food bank and I also can imagine worst case scenarios for school this fall and start thinking about what I'm going to do if we hit the worst case scenario. You know, those kinds of things. And I'm, I'm watching myself sometimes want to slip into learned helplessness. Like, who's going to fix this? You know, when are they coming to make this better? Yeah. And then um, really having to be disciplined about saying, okay, there are absolutely elements of this that are outside of my control what are the elements that are actually not beyond my control? And then how do I do the most with those? Mm -hmm. that, that sentence is the key. That is one of the big takeaways, actually, from the really beautiful research on chronic stress management. Um, the person I'm thinking of here, it's this guy, Bruce Compass, down at Vanderbilt, who's just this lovely guy, who um, a psychologist in their department in their psych department, he um, has spent his entire career studying actually kids and adolescents under really horrible chronic stress conditions. So he's, he's like, this is his universe. Mm -hmm. And looked at kids fighting cancer, kids who had their own like frightening cancer diagnoses, kids in like really rough situations at home, maybe a parent with severe depression. And he spent his whole career looking at like, some kids get through it pretty sturdily intact and some kids don't. And what what's the difference between them? And one of the key findings was um, kids who were able to get through chronic stress conditions would basically look at all of the problems in front of them and say, okay, what is out of my control and I need to let it go? And what is within my control? And then how do I um, press my advantage there to the furthest extent? Okay, but he had this other huge finding. And this, I think, alongside the what can you control? What can you not control? Let go of what you can't control. Go for it with what you can't control. The other thing that I have really held on to through this pandemic was his other finding about under chronic stress conditions, which is everybody now, mm -hmm. you need happy distractions. You need to deliberately seek out things that let you take a pleasant mental vacation. And um, we, we should talk about coping in the broad sense, but this mm -hmm. is probably one of the finest forms of coping with stress to find ways to just check out, help your kids check out. Mm -hmm. And a lot of this is them watching TV, yep. losing themselves in books, and that this is probably going to be one of the most powerful factors to get us through this. 
So operationalizing those two things, basically finding those moments. And if your kid isn't finding them or you're not finding them, grabbing them in some way, not the kids, the moments. Yeah. No, but (laughs) Um, getting serious about it. mm -hmm. Committing to finding those escapes. Yeah. And really, I mean, it's going to be very personal. Um, For me, sometimes it's work, you know, that I can become so absorbed in my work that I actually, you know, and so that's for me a happy distraction. Um, We are watching, my husband and I are watching what we do in the shadows. I don't know if you've seen this TV show. I haven't. It's like, (laughs) it's very idiosyncratic. I find it hilarious. Um, It's vampires living in Staten Island. No. Um, Yeah. I don't even know about it. It's hysterical. But I'm like, and it's brief and it's just um, a total departure from life. That for me is a reliable evening happy distraction. We'll watch a couple episodes of that. Um, I'm reading... Here, this will give you the high-low on my, <laughs> my distraction. I'm also reading um, the Wolf Hall trilogy. Oh, that's um, amazing. Have you read that is, it? That is very high-low. <laughs> I know, it's very high-low. So I had started Wolf Hall. So this is Hillary Mantle's trilogy about Thomas Cromwell. So I'd started Wolf Hall like two years ago, and it was so dense that whatever other intellectual work I was doing at the time, I didn't have any bandwidth left over to enjoy it. Right. And Writing so now, a New York Times bestselling book. <laughs> or something. <laughs> or trying to figure out what to make for dinner. Whatever right. it was. I couldn't, I couldn't. It was uh, a lot to take on. I couldn't do it. But I have found in the pandemic, I actually have. It's incredible. It is incredible and completely absorbing. And so either I am lost in the vampire world on Staten Island or in 16th century England. But those are what's working for me. What's working for you? I would say... I have never been so into watching like late night TV with my trashy TV with my daughter, who I usually force to go to bed. Uh huh. Uh huh. Like, what kind of trash? Like, you've like, like, I fessed up. I fessed up to Milo. I'm like, like we're we're watching Grey's Anatomy, like, consuming it. Like, I said to her, you can't watch that. It's It's too mature for you. And then she convinced me that. All of her friends were watching it. It was kind of leaving her out. So I said, I'll tell you what, we'll watch it together. And if I find that something is just too much, we're going to turn it off. Five billion episodes later, I'm like, <laughs> you up? <laughs> Do you want to watch another one? <laughs> Do you want to watch another one? We've watched like a hundred seasons. It's so, okay, so I love everything about that. And part of what I love is that it's borderline appropriate for your daughter. <laughs> Right. You know, and, and, and I really, I really mean it. And here's why, I, okay. One of the things I'm interested in is like teenagers right now don't get to be teenagers. Mm-hmm. They are stuck with us. They are not um, sneaking. independent, right. not, sneaking. not, not sneaking. sneaking in all the healthy ways they should sneak, like yeah. having sort of separate private lives. And um, I have a 16 year old daughter and a younger mm-hmm. daughter. And she and my husband watched the show that was so inappropriate. I couldn't even watch it. And not like, it's just weird. It was just what a weird show? show. Nathan for you. I don't know. Oh, I do not recommend it. Um, <laughs> it's bizarre, but it's basically, it's like a, oh, I don't know. It's like a satire reality show, but basically this guy, Nathan, like just like makes up crazy scenarios and convinces people they're true and then loops people into these bizarre things. And my 16 year old, like it's so, it's edgy in like all the wrong ways, but not like grossly inappropriate or mm-hmm. anything. 
and it became like how she was naughty. She's like, let's watch Nathan for you. And, and I was like, I couldn't watch it. And my husband could watch it, but he'll be like, oh, not tonight, not tonight. I need to be able to sleep. And so like they, that became their thing is they watch this together. And under normal conditions, I think I would have said like, no. What are like you this, doing? Right. Yeah, what are you doing? And I'm, I'm like, you know what? This is your, you're supposed to be a camp away from us. Yes. Um, being like slightly naughty in totally contained ways, but we can't offer you that now. So you'll be slightly naughty in the contained television room with that. You know? Exactly. And so like, you know, it serves a lot of purposes to watch marginal television right but now. But it definitely, I w- I'm just watching these moments where I'm doing things and I'm like, mm. I can't believe this is this is our this is what we're doing with this time. We're like cuddled up sobbing to a soap opera Love essentially. It. But Love. it's been, you know, that's kind of been our happy escape and it's been her way to kind of feel a little bit older and a little bit, you know, like she's pushing the envelope and frankly, you're right. I mean, a 16-year-old, I can't imagine because 13, which is, you know, my oldest, she's still, you know, she's she she wasn't going out to parties yet. It yeah. wasn't she wasn't there yet. So she's really sad about sleepaway camp, yeah. but not about you know meeting you know romance or anything like that. It just hasn't been the same thing. A sixteen year old, I can't imagine. You know that takes it. That's that's really hard. It's really hard. It's really hard. And you know you're watching families really have a hard time with this, and you're watching teenagers have a hard time with this. That um, teenagers are not designed to be home all the time. Um, their, their job is to become independent and to become increasingly independent. I mean, and if you think about the summer, especially how right. off the clock they usually get to be, how out and about they usually mm-hmm. get to be. And, and it's a really sad thing. Um, but I, I worry most about kids who were already struggling in advance of this or whose families really struggle. Mm-hmm. Um, what you're describing with your daughter, what I'm feeling with mine I feel like it's it's not what we would want, but it'll be okay. Like I, I do exactly that sense. And I do. Even, even in you talking about like um, you guys are cuddling on the couch watching, you know, like lots and lots of like kind of you know <laughs> not like, high What's quality. A threesome? <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, so then then the other thing I keep saying to myself. And, and it comes, I'm reminded of it when you talk about like, you know, here you are like spending all this time watching television with your kid. I'm like, okay, Elite, the goal of the pandemic, and we have to remember this, it's not to see how productive and disciplined everybody can be. Yes. The goal is to get to the other side psychologically intact. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> so if you and your daughter are having a good time cuddling, and it happens to involve you having to explain to her what a threesome is. <laughs> I actually think that probably does more for her overall psychological health and yours than saying, you know what? You are 13. You should not be watching this be in bed. I'll see you in the morning. Right. Like, she's getting plenty of sleep. That's the one good yeah. thing. That's good. They're getting a lot I mean, more sleep. They have been getting incredible sleep. I think yeah. it's also teaching. Yeah, we'll, we'll see if we're reassessing school start time. <laughs> Hi there, I'm Maureen McGoodwin, founder and CEO of Career Contessa, the largest online career resource built inclusively for women. I also have the privilege of hosting our new podcast, The Females. We're here to help with real talk career advice from CEOs, authors, creatives, and other experts to give you real strategies for building a successful career all on your own terms. Each episode of The Females is sure to not only inspire, but also to motivate you to take action and move your career forward. Be sure to tune in every Tuesday for new episodes and follow along on careercontessa.com. 
So we have happy distractions that if they're Mm -hmm. not there, we can find Mm -hmm. and help cultivate, even though that's not in our control, like what Mm -hmm. each individual is going to feel is their thing. But it may mean we back off of TikTok dancing or I don't know, I'm trying to think of something that I can't stand. Yeah. Well, and it is interesting because you just, I think you actually have to do a harm assessment, right? Mm -hmm. How much harm is being done by the TikTok dancing? Mm-hmm. And if that's really working for your kid as a happy distraction, you know, maybe you have to be okay with it. And and for me, the real measure of, because um, a lot of these happy distractions end up being screens, you know, and then everybody gets worried about screen time. Yes. And, and so for me, I'm like, okay, two guardrails on screen time. One is what's on the screen. Mm-hmm. So um, I will take 17 hours of TikTok dancing over 30 seconds of hardcore porn. Right. Right. So there's a lot that screens can deliver. And so let's think about, you know, what's the harm done by what they're looking at? Because there are things that are tremendously harmful to look at. And then there's stuff that is enriching to benign. Mm -hmm. Um, So if they're in the enriching to benign department right now, I think not so much of a worry. Then the other guardrail is, is it getting in the way of all the other stuff that normally developing kids have to do? They have to sleep. They have to be physically active. They have to help around the house. They have to have face-to-face conversations with people. I think they should be learning even in the summer, even if learning is learning how to bake or learning how to play harmonica or learning how to, you know, um, weave. (laughs) Right. Just pick something. Yeah. So, but what I'm finding, so my younger daughter is nine. She has, is a great reader. And she's reading two or three hours a day of her under her own steam. She goes out and plays in the backyard. She goes down in our basement and then plays with stuff. And then, I mean, so if she does six hours of that, totally fantastically. How do I tell her she can't watch TV now? Yeah. <laughs> like she's it's just not worth it. A, it's a ridiculous battle at that point and not worth it. She's done all of those things. That's incredible. We should all hope for that for our kids. We should. And normally she would be at a day camp. Mm-hmm. And we would have, like, the question of how to fill her time would not be so challenging. But we have no, nothing, nothing for her to do. I have a job. My husband has a job. Right. We have been really creative. My in-laws, bless their heart, live a mile from us. And so there's a lot of outdoor time spent with them. But she's watching a lot of TV. Yeah. Yeah. And look, they're bonding over it with each other, too. Yep. So yep. they can't be together, but they can watch something and bond over it. Yep. Yep. Um, so I think that's something to alleviate some of the stress, especially if you, as you said, put guardrails around it, put it away during meals, make sure they're outside, all of the things that you said. And then we do need to get a little bit more comfortable with the fact that it's just more than we would like. And these are pandemic rules. Yes. And, and I think that that's the part that's hard is that it's going on so long that they can start to feel like the new rules. Yeah. Um, and they we'll have maybe- to be... <laughs> <laughs> I know. So when this thing ends, we'll go back to the old rules. Yeah. And and we can say that to ourselves and our kids every once in a while if we feel like we need to make that clear. I say it all the time. And then it it's but it's true. It's getting longer and longer. And and we're doing this about kind of some of the meals that we're having and the TV that we're watching and the screens. But it's true. There is this sense of there's this we're imprisoned by like if we if we allow something today, it's forever. And it's not. It's for right now. It's for right now. These are extraordinarily strange conditions. And I think in some ways as we enter what, like month five of this? I, I don't know. <laughs> you can lose track of that. You can actually lose track of the fact that this is utterly bizarre because it's going on so long. Mm-hmm. 
and, and I think it's helpful to remember, this is not how we really live. This is the getting through. And they're getting used to, we are getting used to, this is the getting through that is, we really have no idea how, yeah. how much longer it's going to be. Isn't it funny? I think about this a lot. Like if somebody gave you an end date, that would change everything. Yeah, right. right? And, and just even that, that sense of um, needing to be patient and, and make the best of it without any clear sense of, you know, where the finish line is. It's so interesting to see how some people just will keep asking, when do you think this is going to end to every expert they can find? Even though we know that that's a ridiculous question because we Mm -hmm. have no idea and nobody has any idea. It's just sometimes you can get looped into just, I need control. And if it's just, I'll just keep asking until I like the answer that I get from someone. And so sometimes certainty makes people just accept something that is absolutely based on nothing, no, no, no accurate information. Um, but so since we don't have that information now, we, we just operate with getting, I mean, I wonder if there is some benefit for those who are not under cumulative stress, who are just in this chronic stress condition, mm-hmm. if there's some benefit to learning to sit with the uncertainty that just felt like you couldn't really tolerate it before, that our window of tolerance is expanded. And I hope it hasn't expanded in a maladaptive way, that we can find ways to make sure that we, while we can tolerate this, it's certainly we're aware that it's still this strange event. Yeah. You know, there is good reason to think that what you're saying is true, that, you know, that, that there are data showing that kind of what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Like there is okay. real truth to that. And um, we have data that I know where we see people who have been through very difficult times and were able to get through them are more resilient in the face of new difficulties. So talking about yardsticks, I think it does, it will for most people change the yardstick of what's considered um, a disruption. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I mean, like there's really never, nothing after this will feel like much of a disruption compared to the level of disruption. Um, we're going to be unpacking this for a long time. Yeah. And we're going to be imp- unpacking its impact on development for a long time. Uh, the longer this goes on, the more I become aware that's going to be true for all kids. You know, I think early, yeah. early days, I was really worried about vulnerable kids. Now I'm worried about kids more generally. Yeah. Um, I, have spent the summer in manic preparation for the fall. Um, I'm very... At school? Uh, thinking about what it means. I hate to say it, like two weeks ago, if school is disrupted, now it's when school is disrupted. Right. I know as someone who spends two days a week consulting to the same school in my area for the last 17 years, so I'm very deeply involved in the life of the school. I know at this kind of marrow level that um, showing up at school physically every day is a wildly protective thing for kids, um, all kids, totally separate from whatever they happen to learn. And so um, I have been working and thinking um, through June and July about what we can and need to do to you know, shore up those losses separate from shoring up educational losses. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and the kinds of things I'm thinking about are, you know, really making sure kids continue to have fam- contact with non-family adults. Um, mm. for tell, instance. Me, tell me more about that. 
So, you know, especially for teenagers, it's extremely important developmentally that you spend time with grownups who are not your parents. Mm. And um, it's funny, one of the things I've been going back and looking at, I wrote an article, one of my columns for the Times um, a while back, that was just sort of a sweet little supper piece about the role of mentors in the mm-hmm. lives of adolescents. Yes. But there's like really good research on what a grown-up who's not your parents can do for you as a teenager that your parents cannot do. And, and there's two things for starters. You know, one is they can praise you in a way that actually sinks in. <laughs> you, know, yeah. like, you know, if you tell your kid, like, oh, I think you're super, they're like, well, you're my mom. You know? Totally. So there's that. So if we think about teachers at school who, you know, give a kid a smile or, you know, like, be like, oh man, you crushed that, you know, that, that, that matters. And, and yeah. I think teachers are going to, they're knocking themselves out. They've been knocking themselves out like mm-hmm. all year. They're going to knock themselves out this fall. I, they would be the first to tell you that there's still some some, you know, there's, you lose something in not being together in those kinds of transactions. You can also, as a teenager, take negative or hard feedback from a non-family adult in a way that you cannot take it from your parents. So in terms of the, like, the growth-giving nature of relationships with adults, there is something distinctly different between teenagers and non-family adults than between younger kids and non-family adults because younger kids will take our praise and younger kids will take our criticism yeah both help them grow teenagers it gets it's just more complicated it's just normal development and so it's a really um, good point yeah so what i would say is you know i think i've got a lot more thinking i'm still trying to work out but for starters mm-hmm. <laughs> people who have teenagers and you know full well that kid is not going to be getting to see the grown-ups at school as much as usual what other grown-ups can you recruit into that young person's traffic pattern. Great uh, idea. Just to have contact with people who can um, see them, enjoy them, mm-hmm. um, and push them, push mm-hmm. them. I, I'll give you one example. One of my really dearest friends from college since um, is a very, very, very talented painter. Her name is Sarah McKenzie with an H. Her work is extraordinary. And my my older daughter is a, is a serious artist. And Sarah has unbelievably generously taken up a correspondence with my older daughter where my older daughter sends her images of what she's making. And she and Sarah maintain an email correspondence around my older daughter's work. And like, this is priceless to me. I love this. This is a wonderful idea because we all have adults that we can match in that way with our kids or that if if they can't seek them out that we can find what a wonderful idea and gift yeah i i am really grateful um there's that going on before Mm -mm. Mm -mm. that's been this summer but there's the delicate dance yeah of um not ruining the idea with um with how excited you are about it as a parent I'm so um, lucky that my children would never listen to a podcast episode. <laughs> yes, okay. So between us. Um, so I think I think then the delicate dance becomes how do you, um, you know, knowing your kid and um, yeah. knowing things, how do you ask them to give it a try? Just give it a try yeah. and, um, and, and see if they bite. It's, you know, right. Because in, when you do go into school, they sort of naturally find those mentors in a different kind of way. This is maybe a little bit more artificial, but yeah. it can be done. It can be done. And again, here's the thing. And this is just where I'm really, my conscience 
is hopefully a good guide and, a, and, a, and an unrelenting guide, actually, is what I mean. Okay, actually, I could do that for my kid. You could probably do that for your kid. Who's a kid whose parents cannot do that for them? And how mm-hmm. do we do it for that kid too? Mm-hmm. So one of the things as we think about the fall and we think about what's going missing for a lot of young people um, and we start to try to compensate, which we have to, we have to. Um, yeah. So then the question becomes, okay, is there some mentorship I could provide mm-hmm. to a young person who's not nearly so plugged in as maybe our families happen to be? Mm-hmm. And how do I make that happen? And do I go through the school? Do I go through the, you know, like, how do I, if, if I know I've got these kind of resources at my disposal, how do I also make sure we share them yeah. um, with people who do not have easy access to these resources? This is where we get ourselves out of learned helplessness, mm-hmm. right? Where we can say, there's a lot about what's happened and what's coming that we hate and that we can do nothing about. But I could be a mentor, you could be a mentor to a young person who's interested in what we do. Mm-hmm. and. Um, find ways to get ourselves plugged into kiddos who um, may not have easy access. Yeah. And that is something that I think makes a material difference and is doable regardless of what goes on with this pandemic. Circling all the way back, yes. what has your routines obsession been this summer and, and how's that carrying you? Okay. So I've become obsessed with routines, which <laughs> is new for me. And part of why it's new is because I had one before that was basically handed to me by my, by demands that were placed upon my time by others, right? Like when my kids had to be at school, when, you know, this meeting or that meeting happened that I needed to be at, um, when my husband left for work, when my husband comes back from work, like, you know, that all of these external structures dictate routine. And so we have them. So those all get blown up and we're more stressed than ever. And I have had to rethink and establish a new routines for myself. And part of what's interesting is they're somewhat arbitrary, right? Like in some ways you can operate without them because the structures are so yeah. um, absent. But I've become really interested in what routines do for us and why we should adopt them even when we're not actually forced to. So uh-huh. one is, and this is something we've known for a long time, but it just has new meaning to me all the time. Routines reduce decision-making fatigue that making choices is very tiring. And so if we don't have routines, we wake up every day and we're like, okay, what's the plan here? When Mm. will I exercise? When will I have coffee? When will I, you know, like, yeah, what do I start with? Um, That's not a good use of mental energy. But more than that, what I've come to appreciate is routines dictate where our time goes. And where our time goes really reflects what matters to us. And under the pandemic, what has to matter tremendously is incredibly good self-care. So I mean, sleep, physical activity, social contact with people who actually improve your life and are not annoying if you can avoid them um, as much as possible. You can't completely. Eating well, happy distractions, Mm. right? And so we know we can list them really readily, right? These are the things we need to get through this pandemic. Listing them is not the same as making them happen. Mm-hmm. How do we make them happen? You enshrine them in your routine. So I have become really disciplined in a way I've never had to before about when I go to bed, what I do before bed so that I can fall asleep, which happens to be reading Hillary Mantle because it's mm-hmm. tense enough and, and escapist enough that it, it helps me fall asleep. Walking a huge amount, right? Because I can sit all day. For hours. For hours. Um, So actually being very rigid about making sure I get 
you know, keep a very high average on my step count on my phone, eating well, you know, um, having TV shows that I really like that are my happy distractions. These are now routinized. And then my work is also routinized in there. But to have to routinize self-care aggressively is a new Mm. thing. I also think it's for me personally, the glue that's going to get me through this. It's going to hold me together through this. And if you're having trouble, let's say you've got this mm-hmm. and you have a teenager who is pushing back on that self-care, how can, you know, without the battles, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. how do you, how do you move them, move them to that okay. self-care? So first we have to recognize that everything everyone is doing right now is coping. Mm. Sometimes coping is negative, meaning um, a kid has or a grown up has hold themselves up in their room and they're not talking to anybody. Yeah, um, it's negative coping in that it helps them feel better in the short term, but it doesn't work well in the long term. Um, negative coping is also substance abuse or misuse, mm-hmm. right? Very effective in the short term, not so great in the long term. Um, negative coping is taking a phone to bed and just scrolling and scrolling and scrolling and scrolling as opposed to sleeping. So all the stuff we don't like them doing, or we don't like that we're doing. I think the first step is to say like, this is coping, not good coping, but coping, Mm -hmm. but just to honor that and then say, okay, it needs to be replaced with positive coping. So instead of walling people off, finding the social connections at work, um, doesn't have to be a lot. Some people don't need much instead of substance misuse, happy distractions, instead of junk habits of taking phones to bed, you know, really, really conscientious self-care. So I think we acknowledge that what they're doing is working, but won't work forever. Mm-hmm. We ask them to adopt habits that are more likely to work. I think with teenagers then, who do not like to be told what to do, right? Right. I think the best way to have that conversation is to say, okay, there are non-negotiables and there are negotiables here. Mm-hmm. So the non-negotiable is that you actually have to be physically active every day. The negotiable is how you do it. If you TikTok dance for three hours, that counts. Uh-huh. <laughs> if you want to go on a walk with me, that counts. That counts. If you, but I don't care how you do it. If you want to go play Just Dance in the basement, yeah, that counts. But the, the activity is the non-negotiable. How you do it is the negotiable. And, like, and to do that piece by piece, you have to have a happy distraction. You cannot be smoking weed. Okay, mm-hmm. so the non-negotiable is like no weed. Right. You know, the negotiable is what happy distraction would you like? You know, uh-huh. like there's lots of things out there. There's Grey's Anatomy. There's all of it. You know? <laughs> so I think, I think that that's how I would approach this with an adolescent. Thank you for listening to Raising Good Humans and have a good week.